Well, say what you want about Indiana, but when July 4th comes, we know how to blow stuff up. Do we not? Now, if you're not, if you are from here and you've lived here your whole life, you may not fully appreciate that it is not this way in other parts of the country. In other parts of the country, the best you can really hope for is maybe on the other side of town, someone, maybe even the government or some very wealthy corporation, will put on a nice 20-minute or half-hour-long fireworks show. But you'll have to go through an hour or two of traffic to get there and three or four hours of traffic to get home because everybody will be there to see it. And in many other parts of the country, they, they don't even do it at all. Maybe they'll have a drone show instead, which drones don't blow up, and so they're just nowhere near as fun. Uh, or maybe they won't have anything, and so you've got to go buy your own and set off a few bottle rockets or something in the backyard. Or maybe, maybe that's not even legal, and maybe you can't even make it across the state line to buy any of the stuff, and there's just no fireworks at all. Uh, my cousin Tony works for the fire department out west, and it used to be his job for like 10 years in a row to drive his truck around on July 4th and shut down people's July 4th parties because their fireworks went more than three feet off of the ground. And he was telling me about it last week, and he was saying, I just can't think of anything more unpatriotic to have to do on the 4th of July than tell person after person, I'm sorry, ma'am, your fireworks have gone more than three feet off the ground and we're going to have to shut this down. And then there's Indiana, right? Where you can open up the paper and see your choice of half hour or longer fireworks shows that are going on all week. Do you want to go to the Red, White, and Blueberry Festival and see their fireworks? Or the Marion County Fair and see their fireworks? Or the Freedom Festival and see their fireworks? Or the, the random neighborhood on 135 that just puts on a half hour long fireworks show on Friday night? You've got choices here and it's wonderful and I'm I'm loving it. And I'm glad we get to see that because it gives us a really good picture of actually what's going on in the scriptures right now. If you've ever been to a long fireworks show, you know the rhythm, right? There's a, there's a moment of anticipation. The, the flare goes up with its little bit of sparks. And you know what's going to happen, right? When it gets to the top, it is going to explode and it's going to be glorious. And so there's a period of waiting for it. And then there's boom, oh yeah, and you're excited and it comes. And then after several of those, they stop for a minute, right? And you kind of catch your breath and oh man, that was awesome. And then choo, up goes another one, right? All over again. Anticipation, boom. Anticipation, boom. Anticipation, boom. And then you stop and you catch your breath for a minute and you do it all over again. Now, if you read the scriptures rightly, that is, if you're looking for the glory of Jesus Christ on every page, it's really kind of the same experience. There's little moments of anticipation where you know something's going to come, and then there's boom, blaze of glory. And then there's more anticipation, and boom, another blaze. And then you stop and catch your breath, and then it starts all over again. Now, I'm saying all that because the last couple of passages have been like a flare going up that we knew was going to explode. And today, we get to the, the boom. Today's passage is one of those moments where the scriptures just explode off the page with the glory of Jesus Christ. 
and I am so excited to walk through it with you. If you're just joining us, we are in a portion of the scriptures that's not often preached, the ending of the book of Genesis. And this is where Jacob gathers his 12 sons and two of his grandsons together, and he blesses them and gives them their portion of the inheritance before he dies. And in him doing that, we learn a lot about ourselves as the people of God, because these 12 brothers make up the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God. So far, we have seen a few interesting things happen. We have seen these brothers fight over who will get the firstborn's share of the inheritance. And for all of their fighting, that firstborn's blessing went to two grandsons named Ephraim and Manasseh instead of any of the 12 brothers. And then we saw the firstborn three sons, the first, second, and thirdborn sons be passed over and not given much of a blessing, but given a curse instead because they were wicked men who acted wickedly. And now we come to this really interesting character, Judah. So there's a few things going on here. One is earlier we knew that a mighty savior king who was going to fix everything in the world was going to come from one of these 12 brothers. And it kind of looked like it would be Joseph, and then now it's not Joseph. And maybe it's Ephraim, the one who got elevated, but it doesn't sound like him. And so who is it going to be that will be the ancestor of the great Messiah? And then on the other hand, we've seen Judah go from being a very wicked man to turning and becoming a very sacrificial noble leader in the family. He's also regained his father's trust and is leading the family again. And so we're at this point where we're about to get to Judah's blessing and we're asking, huh, Judah's kind of the best candidate left to be the one who's going to be the ancestor of the Messiah. Could it be that the Lord smiles upon Judah's change and his repentance? And could it be that Judah will be the one who is the ancestor of Jesus Christ? Well, let's dive into chapter 49, verse 8, and we will see what becomes of Judah. Jacob says to him, Judah, your brothers shall praise you, and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub, and from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth Whiter than milk. So these are the words of the Lord God, and the Spirit speaks life through them. What the Spirit is doing this morning is revealing to us, through the blessing of Jacob down to Judah, the glory of their greater son, Jesus Christ. These words are about Jesus, they are about our Lord and about our King. And Two big plots, as I mentioned earlier, are converging and resolving right here in this moment of this blessing. First, the main plot line of Genesis has been 
The tension introduced in chapter 3, mankind fell into sin. This brought death into the world. This brought suffering and disobedience and separation from God into the world. And as soon as it happened, the Lord promised some descendant of Eve, some human, would come along and would fix all this, crush the serpent and make it right. And the big plot line every generation in Genesis is, okay, who in this generation will be the ancestor of that coming Messiah who will fix it? Will it be Isaac or Ishmael? Will it be Jacob or Esau? And today, which of these 12 sons will it be? So there's one plot line that's converging. And then the other one is the one I mentioned a minute ago, Judah's character transition. He's gone from being a terrible human being to being a noble and sacrificial leader. And so what does the Lord think of this repentance that he has done? What is going to happen to Judah? Both of them meet and both of them are answered here. The Messiah may look like Joseph, but he's going to come from Judah. Jesus will rise from the tribe of Judah. And so we see the answer to both of those plot lines. And as that happens, we get fireworks of glory, just blazes of glory, glimpses into who this Messiah will be. What will he be like? What is our Christ like? Flashes of his glory that will burst for a moment and then fade off into the night as the next flashes prepare in the following passages. So I'm going to give to you this morning five glimpses into the glory of Jesus Christ from these very words. Well, let's look first at verse 8, the first and the third lines. You can see it says there, Judah, your brothers will praise you. And then very similarly in the third line, your father's sons will bow down before you. Two different ways of saying the same thing. Everyone else in the people of God is going to worship and praise this one. So whoever this one who comes from Judah is, he will rule God's people and God's people will worship him. And so from that, we get our first glimpse into the glory and the dignity of Jesus Christ. Jesus rules God's people, and we worship him. It's part of his beauty. Now, we saw pictures of this in Joseph already, right? We saw dreams, like in one where uh, Joseph has dreams that he and his brothers all have sheaves of wheat, and the other brothers, their sheaves, bow down to his sheaves, uh, saying that the other brother is going to bow down to him one day. And in that generation, that is what happens. The brothers come before Joseph, they bow down before him to receive grain, wheat, what they would get from those sheaves. But in Revelation, the one who holds the the bread of life, the one that everyone comes and bows down before, the one that the 24 elders bow down before and cast their crowns before, is not a son of Joseph, but a son of Judah. It is Jesus Christ. Also in Joseph's dreams, we saw him dreaming where the the sun and the moon and the stars were bowing down to him, a sign of all the people of God, his father, his mother, his brothers, all bowing down to him. And his dad rebuked him, are your mother and me and your brothers really going to bow down to you? And in that generation, they did. They bowed down to Joseph. But in Revelation, it is the son of Judah who holds the stars, the sun, and the moon in his right hand. It is Jesus Christ who has power over them, who rules the sun, moon, and stars, rules the people of God. 
And so as things open up, we will eventually see this Messiah will rise from Judah and Jesus will fulfill these pictures, holding the sun, the moon, and the stars, everyone bowing down to him. He is the ruler of God's people. He is our king. And we gather here even this morning to worship him. Even today, on this day in July in 2023, those two lines have been coming true all day today. It began with what we thought of as last night, but in places like Australia and Japan, it was, it was Sunday morning already there. And so the sun rose and believers on that side of the world got up, gathered together, and they praised the son of Judah, Jesus Christ, fulfilling these very words that were spoken almost 4,000 years ago. Judah, your brothers will praise you. The sons of your father will bow down before you. Some of them literally started bowing before Jesus Christ this morning. And then it moved to places like China and, and Western Australia. And then the sun rose there and they began gathering and they began praising the son of Judah and on to, to Europe and Africa where people began rising this morning and praising the son of Judah. And then now the day has come, morning has come here on the east coast of the United States, and here we are gathered all over this city, all over this part of the country, gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, the son of Judah, to praise him. And soon it will be time for central time and the west coast, and then eventually Alaska and Hawaii and the far reaches over in the west. Until finally, around the whole world, people have gathered to fulfill Jacob's words to his son, Judah, your brother's going to rise up and praise you. And next week, unless the Lord returns, we're going to do it all again, aren't we? In fact, these words kind of summarize everything that we do as a church. All those songs we were just singing, sing a hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Our, our mighty fortress is our God. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus. It is he, the son of Judah, right? All of the songs we sing, uh, the fact that we get our strongest singers up here on the stage to lead the church in song so that we can rise up and sing to him, we're fulfilling the words that Jacob spoke to Judah, all of the people of God rising up to praise the son of Judah, Jesus Christ. I'm even fulfilling it right now as I speak to you and preach to you with all I have got, just pouring myself out to tell you how great this son of Judah is. And Miss B is doing the same thing in the back right now with all of our kids and her team, and they're just proclaiming to those kids the glory of Jesus Christ, fulfilling these very words, Judah's brothers, the people of God, rising up to praise the son of Judah, Jesus Christ. Will you not give him all of your praise? If you're a believer in Jesus, it was promised that you would rise up and praise the son of Judah 4,000 years ago. And will you then offer him that praise today? He's worthy of it. Now in the other part of verse 8, the middle line there and in all of verse 9, we see the flip side of that truth. So if the first glory was that Jesus rules the church, the people of God, and we praise him, well, what about those who are his enemies? How does he interact with them? And in, 
in verse 8, the second line, we see first a really powerful image. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. And then in verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. He goes out from the prey, he's gone up, he stoops down, he's crouched as a lion, and who would dare to rouse him? So one image of this son of Judah having his hands on the neck of his enemies, and another image of him as a lion that has gone out to the hunt and been successful. No one dares to rouse this great and mighty lion. And so if first we saw that Jesus rules God's people and we praise him, What we see on the flip side is that Jesus conquers his enemies and he destroys them. Now that's very important because that's exactly what it was promised he would do in chapter 3. God's greatest enemy, Satan, slithers into the garden. Sin is brought into the world. Death is brought into the world. Suffering and separation from God are brought into the world. And what was the promise then? This descendant of Eve, this one who would come, would crush the serpent and his seed and everything he has brought into the world. So those eternal enemies that haunt people to this day, death, he has got his hands around the neck of death. And, and sin, you, some of you believers are fighting sin, and it is a struggle, a fight, and you're saying, how can I not defeat this sin? But your Lord, your master Jesus, has his hands around the neck of sin, and when he comes, he will slay it forever. Suffering, separation from God, he just defeated it in one fell swoop by paying for all of the sins of his people. He is the only one who, like a lion, can go out and hunt death and tear it to pieces. He is the only one who can go out like a lion and hunt down suffering and say, I'm going to go to earth and I'm going to do my work for them. And when I come back, I'm going to end suffering for my people forever. He's the only one that can go out on the prowl like that. And he is the only one that can go out on the prowl against sin. You may fight it and you may be losing. By God's power, you can have some victory over it. But when he comes back, when the lion comes back on the prowl, who dares? What sin would dare to rouse him? Sin will be defeated forever. Now that's true of his eternal enemies, things like death and sin. There are also many people in the world, in fact, we were all born this way, Many people who have made themselves enemies of Jesus, who have chosen enmity with him. There are some who will say it overtly, right? The God of the Bible is a monster and I want nothing to do with him. He is my enemy. And there are others who have never read the scripture but have seen the sun come up in the morning And known in their hearts, there must be someone who made all of this who's worthy of my worship, but chosen, instead of worshiping the maker of the sun, chosen to worship the sun itself. Or seen a frog hop along and said, wow, that is is wonderful. Whoever made this frog is worthy of my worship and loyalty, but instead bowed down and worshiped the frog instead. 
or who have known in their hearts that there is a real right and wrong in the universe. And people who do wrong deserve to be judged for it. We feel that in our hearts and our consciences. And there are so many, in fact, we're all born this way, who have said, I know what the right thing to do is. I know that those who do wrong are worthy of being judged. And I choose the wrong thing. So, so many today, in fact, people in every tribe and every tongue and every nation have willfully chosen to make themselves enemies of God. And people of God, we were once among them, weren't we? And the, the terrifying truth we see there is that Jesus conquers them as well. All of his enemies. His hand finds out every foe. And when he returns, he will lay his hands upon him. And as the words say, who, who would dare to rouse him? We have seen, in fact, great works of man brought down. And we read about it in Revelation as well. When he returns, it says, uh, he will come in the clouds and all of the nations on earth, every tribe on earth will, will weep because of him. Why? Because he comes back as conquering king, and the sword that comes out of his mouth is to strike down the nations. We read as well in Revelation of of Babylon, the great city of man, the ultimate empire of man, falling in a single hour. The the lion is pounced, he's crouched, and he's ready to pounce. And the thing about a lion is that you don't know he's there until he pounces, right? There, there are many mountain lions in the Smoky Mountains. I was just there, and, and you hear people say that, and I've been there so many times, and I have never seen any evidence of a mountain lion. And that's what's so frightening about it, isn't it? You never see any evidence until you do, and it's too late, right? And in the same way, this lion, the lion of Judah, is crouched. And many will say they see no evidence of him coming. They say they see no evidence of his authority and power. And suddenly, out of the bushes, he will come and he will pounce. And the sword coming from his mouth will strike down the nations. And Babylon will fall in a single hour. And we know what that looks like because we've seen things like that. If you were following the news the week before last, you heard about the Wagner Group and this military group that tried in a day to take over Russia. They tried to storm Russia and take it over. And in a moment, they were put down, right? Or closer to home, many of you are old enough like I am to remember where you were when the, the great sign of American dominance, the, the Twin Towers in New York City, just, just fell in, a, in essentially an, an hour. I can remember sitting there and watching the TV and seeing that, that big smoking hole and just kind of confused by it, and I never expected what I saw next which was just the whole tower crumble and fall down. And I wanted to vomit because my heart and mind just couldn't process that quickly that tower fell. And minutes later, the next one did too. Now, when Jesus returns and Babylon falls in a single hour like that, the people of God won't want to vomit like I wanted to vomit on that day, but it will be that sudden, it will be that surprising, 
It will be like a lion pouncing out of the bushes. And when he comes, we're going to know that he is there. He has his hands upon his enemy, and he is like a lion going out to the prowl. And for believers, that is good news. It means whatever you're weeping over, Jesus is going to conquer it for good. Are, are you weeping over, over death, a recent death, or a long-ago death? Remember, Jesus Christ will come and he will conquer death. Revelation says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. He will slay it to pieces. Some of you are weeping over sin that you just can't overcome, right? A habit you keep falling into and you're like, why is this happening? I'm a believer in Jesus. I should be free from this. You're mourning over it now, but Jesus is going to come and he's going to slaughter sin. You will not weep over it after he comes back. You will not be haunted by it ever again. Some of you shed tears just over suffering and physical pain and health problems. And when Jesus comes back, he is going to conquer those problems with all of his might and power. His hand is on the necks of his enemies. Sin, Satan, and death will be destroyed. So take heart, Christian, and be encouraged. Your enemies will fall. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, and you know, you're aware, I have done wrong before God. I've refused to worship God when I should worship him. I know I must pay for these things. I've made myself an enemy of God. Oh, that he would use these words to soften your heart and to show you that there is no use being an enemy of the God of the Bible, for he will come and come in power. Because he, he sticks out his hand open to you. All of his enemies can now become his friends again. Anyone who will come again to him and, and receive him can become his friend. And I pray he would soften your heart. I'll explain the gospel more clearly at the end of this sermon. But, but between now and then, just look to this Christ and look for a way for forgiveness for your sins. For he has provided, and if you would trust him, you can receive it. So that's the second glory of Jesus. He rules over his enemies. He conquers them. We see something else in verse 9 that's very interesting. Look at the progression in verse 9 with me. Do you see that he starts out as a lion's cub? Judah is a lion's cub. But he doesn't end as a cub. First he's a cub, and then he is... uh, going up to the prey. There's a bit of upward motion there. He's going out to prey. So now this lion is old enough to go out and and go hunting. And then by the end, he's a fierce lion that who dares to rouse him? A, A lioness who can roar, who would dare to rouse him? So you see the progression there from cub to just old enough to go out to prey to full grown lion, lioness combined in glory. The glory of Jesus Christ is slowly revealed over time. And that is exactly what's going to happen in this book. And so the third glory we see, the third blaze of glory, is that Jesus' glory is not yet fully revealed. Now we've got a little lion cub form of it right here in this passage in Genesis. Right, right now the glory of Jesus is like little, little Simba being held over pride rock, right? Mighty and wonderful and, and, and small, like a, like a seed version of the glory that will soon be revealed. Uh, 
But soon, about a thousand years later, King David is going to rise up in power, a son of Judah himself. And, and he will rise and he will rule in the fear of God mightily and subdue God's enemies. And he will be promised that his son after him, one day from his body, will come a son who rules forever. And so there we're seeing kind of the, the yearling version of it, you know, old enough to go out to pray and now a bigger, more glorious version of Jesus being revealed. And then the prophets come and tell us more and more and it's like the mane of the lion is growing. We're starting to see how glorious the lion of Judah is. And then he comes in power. And he shows his power over sin by, by healing diseases and his power over death by raising people from the dead and his authority by speaking truth with authority and, and the lion of Judah is coming and is roaring. And, and then he leaves and sends his spirit and we got a little sense of his glory now, but, but Paul says that we see him as in a really dim, poor, bubble-filled piece of glass, like we're looking through a bad window to see the glory of Jesus. But he says, one day we'll see face to face. So that means, however big and glorious your picture of the Lion of Judah is, the real thing is bigger and is better. And so go ahead and, go ahead and expand your picture. And still... The real thing is bigger and is, and is better. Church, you have not heard the full roar of the Lion of Judah, but you will. And you have not looked right into the eyes of the Lion of Judah, but, but you will. Now, that is why Revelation paints such unimaginable pictures of him. Right, like we get him in Isaiah and he's seated on the throne and the train of his robe fills the temple and there are all these heavenly creatures crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts who was and is and is to come. Or the whole earth is full of his glory, I think it says. And, and at their voice, the whole temple is shaking and it is filling up with smoke. And it's just this unimaginable, wonderful picture. And then in Revelation, he is seated on the throne, encircled with an emerald rainbow. What does an emerald rainbow look like? Does it have a lot of colors? Is it all green? Are there lots of colors of green? Who knows, right? It's unimaginable how glorious this is. And there it is not the heavenly creatures, but the 24 elders bowing down before him and casting their crowns before him. And then in another place in Revelation, he comes and he, he has long white hair like wool, and he, and he has eyes of a flaming fire and a sash to show his dignity and his authority. And the sword of two sides is coming out of his mouth, and that sword represents his words. It's, it's an unimaginable picture. And those pictures are that way because you cannot imagine how glorious this Christ is. No eye has seen the face of this lion, and no ear has heard the roar of this lion. 
and no heart can even imagine what he has prepared for the people who love him. The glory of Jesus is not fully revealed. And whatever you might know of it, you know just a sliver. So that's the third glory revealed today. To get the fourth one, we look down to verse 10. There we see the same thing said with two different images. First, a scepter won't depart from Judah. And then the ruler's staff won't depart from between his feet. So that means that eventually, one day, someone in the house of Judah, the dynasty of Judah, some son of Judah, is going to rule forever. You probably make the connection with the images. Whoever's in charge in most cultures on earth, there's always been some visible sign. This guy is the one in charge, right? The, the chief among the natives has, has a feather-covered headdress to show that he is in charge. Or In the old NASA photos, you remember that the commander had the red stripes on his uniform, a visual sign. This guy is in charge. And in the ancient world, it was one sign we still use today, the crown on his head, or a, a scepter in his hand, which was glorious and full of jewels and beautiful, and he held it in his hand to show the, the dignity and the glory of his power. If he held that thing, he was powerful. And another sign of authority then was actually a shepherd's staff. Uh, the shepherds in that day carried a, a big staff, and they were the one in charge of the sheep. And so kings would actually use the same sign to say, I am the shepherd of this place. And they would hold and plant that thing between their feet, and it said, I'm in charge. I'm the shepherd. I'm the king. And what Jacob is saying here to Judah is that uh, this king who will come from Judah is never going to hand the scepter over to somebody else. He's never going to hand the shepherd's staff over to somebody else. He will rule forever and ever and ever, right? So no succession plan for this king. No election cycle for, for this king. And that is so different from what we're used to, right? You, you may have a guy or, or a gal that you're rooting for in the last election or the one before or, or the next one. And Usually your person doesn't win, right? Yeah. But if your person does win, then they get to go into the White House and then they spend their whole time there fighting against the opposition who still has a stronghold in the government and not able to get very much done. And best case scenario, four years go by and then it all happens again. And if your side won last time, your side is less likely to win this time. You may get a little power for your side, and it may last a little while, but it's not going to last forever. It'll always come back, and you'll always have to give it up. So it is almost impossible for us to imagine our guy winning and that being the end of it. But that's what's going to happen when our king comes, right? Our guy is going to win, and it will be over. And so Revelation says, to him who sits on the throne be glory and power and dominion forever and ever, right? Because the scepter is never going to depart from the hand of the son of Judah. Okay, the last blaze of glory we get is the, the images are the most obscure to us, and so I'm going to need to spend the most time explaining them. Let's read verses 11 and 12. It says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine 
and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. See what I mean? Ancient imagery that a lot of us probably read that and say, okay, that's, that's interesting. What's going on there? Well, a couple of things going on. First, uh, rulers in that day rode on a donkey or a colt of a donkey. And prophet later will say that this coming king, Jesus, will ride on the colt of a donkey. And he does on Palm Sunday, rides into Jerusalem on, on the colt of a donkey. Uh, that was then kind of like, uh, you know, Air Force One or Marine One, like the thing that the leader would ride around in. So, so he's going to be a king. He's going to be in charge. And the other images, the wine, the milk, the grapes, the vines, those things speak of the prosperity of his kingdom. Now, in that day, you were really making it if you could get a, a vine all the way to full maturity, and then all the way to a fermented bottle of wine. Uh, now, you're living in the ancient day. You're trying to get by. There are marauders and bands and armies all over the place, constantly conquering your land, chasing you somewhere else. It's kind of chaos, unless some great, you know, Hammurabi or somebody rises up and rules for a while, but then it's not really great then either because he takes everything from you. And so to have just a long enough period of peace that you can grow crops and eat them and survive and have land for your animals and eat them and survive. Like very few people could even get that far ahead in the ancient world. But then imagine that not only do you have land that is stable and it is producing and no one is taking it from you and you can eat, but you, can, you have extra time and extra peace and, and energy to devote to, to a vineyard you don't, you don't need wine, right? But you have extra to devote to growing that. And then it takes many years before it starts bearing grapes. And no one has come and conquered it or burned it down in that time. And then you harvest the grapes and then you put them in barrels and you put them in the barn. And it takes years for them to ferment and become wine. And so you have had many years in a row of peace and prosperity. And finally... You open up a bottle of wine to say, we have had peace and we have had prosperity. In that time, your animals are not just prospering enough to feed you and not just reproducing enough to feed their young, but they actually have enough milk left over that you can go and milk them and drink some of that milk yourself and then spend extra time curding that into cheese and curds and things like that. If you are making it that well in the ancient world, you are rich. You're doing great. Well, this king, who will come from Judah, he will ride a donkey, so he'll be in charge. And he is going to take that donkey and he is going to tie it to a good vine, a choice vine. Now, the last thing you're ever going to do is tie your donkey to your good vine, right? What's the donkey going to do? He's going to eat it, right? You've been working on that thing for years. He's going to tie it. Because he has got so many good vines that he can just tie his donkey to one of them and let his donkey eat it. This guy's donkey is eating better than most people are eating. He is prosperous. He is covered. He's washing his clothes in wine because he has so much of it. 
His teeth are white as milk. His eyes are darker than wine because he's just been eating and drinking of the good stuff for years and years. They would say in the ancient world, he is red with wine, and that means he's really rich. We would say his pockets are lined with green, right? Similar kind of imagery, right? This guy is wealthy. He is prosperous. His kingdom is producing. And so the last glory we see about him is that Jesus' kingdom will overflow with riches. When this king comes, we are going to lack for nothing. And he's going to get the best of it. So Revelation gives us pictures of this too. The capital city comes down and it's like the whole thing is made out of gold and it's like a thousand miles long and wide and tall, more gold than has ever been on the world coming down covered in jewels and prosperity. They will hang jewels on the wall like we have glass windows and exit signs and panels in the back, just jewels everywhere because the place will be full of wealth and riches. We read in Revelation of the tree of life there in his kingdom, and it's there forever, and its leaves go out to all the nations for the healing of the nations, and it gives 12 different fruits in season, as if it were like one for each month of the year, and those fruits are sent out all over the world because there is so much. Just that one tree of life gets sent all over the world, and everyone feasts on it. And the other prophets and the other books of the Bible paint the same picture of that coming day when he comes back. Uh, Leviticus and the Psalms talk about it as a great harvest of grapes. Leviticus says at one point when he comes, he says, your, your threshing is going to last until the grape harvest, meaning you will have so much wheat, it will take you so long to thresh it all that by the time you're done processing it, it will be time for the grape harvest and you'll have to get started again. Or in, in our language, by the time you are done counting your money, it will be payday again and you will have to start counting your money again. It says in another place, the plower is going to overtake the reaper because the land is producing so much. The pictures we get of that coming kingdom are just full of prosperity. Now, there are many who would want this now, right? Wouldn't you like for your bills to be paid now and have good health now? And so there are many preachers who would take that imagery and proclaim it falsely through what's called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel, uh, which is the, the heresy of saying that those new kingdom blessings will all be here today if you follow Jesus. Right? If, you, if you trust him in faith today, the idea is uh, your bills will be paid or you'll, you'll overcome that trauma that you went through and your life will be better, healthier, wealthier. That's why it's the health and wealth gospel. And the truth is, Jesus' ways are good. You might find some benefit. You may wind up more wealthy because he teaches you wisdom and you can earn more money. Uh, but the truth is, those blessings and prosperity come in the, in the coming kingdom, right? They come tomorrow when Jesus comes back. And rather than making Jesus into the, the tool by which we satisfy our greed and get what we want, instead, in the coming kingdom... He gets the best of it all. all right. We're getting good stuff coming to us. But who's going to be on top? Right. He's going to be on top. His glory will shine and live on forever and ever. So he will be, as the ancient text would say, red with wine. His teeth will be white with milk. And if you're following him, what, are, what do you think your clothes 
are going to be like in the new kingdom. I'm just radiant and dazzling. What kind of food are you going to eat? If you have a dog in the new kingdom, your dog is going to eat better than you eat right now. It's going to be that good. What will your home be like? And what will your land and property be like? How much will it produce and how much will you harvest? What, what technology will be available to you in your hands when he comes back? Well, we've got just a little glimpse like this as we see this king tie his donkey to a good vine and not even care that the donkey is eating better than we are eating. So there we have pictures of his glory, and I hope your heart is just warm with, with love for him. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, well, what I want you to see is that this king, this Jesus, is worthy of all of your worship and loyalty. Church, do not come to him with a divided heart. Right? He is worthy of your whole heart. What, what is that sin that you're trying to set aside, that you want to hold on to, but you're trying to set aside? He is worthy of you letting go of it forever and setting it aside. What is, what is that moment when you, when you don't want to sing out his praise in worship? He is worthy of all of the singing of your heart. What is that portion of your life that you don't want to give over to him? If you have seen his glory, you know this morning he is worthy of all of your heart, all of your devotion. Let me speak to any of you who may not be believers this morning. Maybe you've come here and you know, okay, I don't follow this Jesus. Maybe you're interested in him. Maybe you're not. I hope you can see how worthy he is of coming to. He is not just an ancient teacher who came and died and is gone. He is the Lion of Judah, and he will come again with a full roar. He's worthy of you coming to, and, and here's what he has done for you so that you can come back to him. He has come to earth, and he has lived without sin, so that when he died willingly, offering himself on a cross, he would not be paying for his own sin, but he would be paying for the sins of those who would trust him. And the offer is open to you this morning that you can become one of those people who his death pays for their sins. If you want to see all your sins forgiven and the barrier between you and God removed, that you can have intimate fellowship with your maker again, look to Jesus Christ who has paid for the sins of all those who look to him and trust him. And then he rose from the dead to show his power over death and his guarantee that all those who would trust him will rise from the dead themselves and have death conquered for him, for them. And so look to him and find a guarantee of resurrection from the dead. And you'll find much more in him too. He is Lord and King and worthy of following. You'll find good laws, good rules for life that are worthy of following. You will find his spirit dwelling in you to comfort you and strengthen you for all of the walk that is ahead of you. That and so much more you will find by looking to Jesus and saying, I believe you are who you say you are and I trust you. Will you save me? So if you're not in him this morning, that's my call to you. Look to him in faith. Look to him and say, I trust you. Will you save me? Let's pray to this one now.